0: Now maybe you wonder again why I'm in a cage and maybe you've invited someone here tonight because the pastor is preaching in a state. ach in a cage, and I want to say chill, it's our last night of this series, so I'm never in my whole life going to do this again. Because it's really frustrating me and it's horrible because I can't connect with you guys if I'm in a cage. But I hope it brings the sermon home tonight and I hope it brings the series home because we're speaking on the thing of making space in our lives. Making space. And uh, I don't know what comes to your mind when I say the words making space or making room or You know, creating breathing room or margin in your life. Because all of us at some stage feel overextended, overworked, burned out. You only have a few crumbs left. Anyone recently, well, I I experience this very often. I come to the cupboard and I open the cookie jar and I see that my kids have helped themselves. And I only find a few crumbs at the bottom. Maybe your life is like this at the moment. There's only a few crumbs left. This series is for you. How to make breathing room, how to make space in our lives for God to work. What comes to mind when I say the the words making space? I have a few pictures for you uh, just to illustrate this idea of making space. Do you remember before COVID when we would go to the beach? Do you remember that? Without the police chasing you. It was the free world. You remember? It looked like that sometimes. Anyone who was at a beach in Artenbos or Durban that looked like that, you know. And I see these days after COVID, like there's like a a new universal rule to just have space in between. And all the introverts say, amen. All the extroverts are like, This is really a lonely world that we are living in. Amen? All the extroverts here tonight? You're supposed to be the guys that are shouting. All the introverts were like, woohoo! And the extroverts are now like, judge much? Yes, I completely forgive you. I just quickly also brought a picture of when my, um, my wife and I and our three boys go on holiday... Um, our vehicle looks like this. Uh, you can put that slide on. Um, we only have a small sedan and a Ranex, and we go on a holiday, and it looks like there's really no space left. Maybe you're at that place tonight. You're saying, Eugene, I'm, I'm stuck in a corner. I'm pressed on every side. And we have spoken in this series about two topics so far, the thing of time and energy. And the second one is relational capacity. So how quickly do we find ourselves, we start life, we start student, the young, you know, free life with a lot of space, a lot of time on our hands, a lot of capacity to meet new people, to venture into the world, to connect with people. Then we get responsibilities, we get things that we should carry, we get, you know, uh, stuff to do, duty list, tasks list, you know, due dates, we get things like, you know, relationships that are in crisis, we get, you know, stretched to the point where we are just pressed into a corner and you think that the only way out of this is to get a bigger room. To get more time, to get more capacity, to get more money. Lord, just give me a bigger room to have space to live my life in. Some of us, when we are pressed against the corners of our lives, find ourselves that we want a way of escape. The very, very good space for temptation to enter into our lives. It's a way of just getting out of the mess, getting out of the crisis. My friend, our faith in Jesus is not a faith of escapism, never. Our faith in Jesus is always faith first, trusting in Him for the unimaginable, for the unthinkable, for the impossible. And what we've said in this series is that when we find ourselves in a place where we are stuck in a corner, we just want to get out, we are burnt out, you know, we're just done, what do we do? We make space. We create margin in our lives. We create this zone, almost a buffer zone, a reserve zone in our lives. Firstly, for God to come and work. You see, if you are pressed into the corner of your life, you don't have objectivity to actually handle the crises of your life. When you have margin in your life, you can move around. You can be objective. You can think of new ideas. You can think of new solutions. And it creates a space for God to come and work. It's a faith zone in our lives. For instance, in the first week we said, when it comes to our time, it's all about the thing of trusting God that in six days we can accomplish Seven days of work. That's a biblical principle. I'm not talking about the law of the Sabbath because that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath. Now I'm speaking about the principle of the Sabbath. That one day you trust and have faith for one day that God would supply seven days of effectivity and of input. You can ignore that principle for a while. Then it catches on to you and God would help you (laughs) again to take some rest. We also said in the first week, the thing of slowing down for loving union with Christ. You see, you can't have loving union with Christ if you don't have space in your life where you bring down the pace to five kilometers an hour and you just chill with God. I'm not speaking about laziness, though. I'm speaking about time in our day, in our week, where we intentionally revive ourselves, renew ourselves, be with God that He could rebuild us from the inside out. Then last week, Aiden spoke, spoke, spoke. <laughs> you get like speak, spoke, and spoke, all right? I have spoken much today, so forgive me, you know, my English is a heavenly language, so I'm struggling here, all right? When we speak about relational capacity, what are driving you to the place where you feel like your circle of friends is full, you no longer want to connect to new people, you have these like toxic relationships sometimes in your life or unresolved issues, and you carry that with you? And it steals your joy, it steals your capacity to connect to people, to actually walk a road with people, it steals your capacity to have. Good influence in your life of mentors and people that walk the road with you. And what we said is create space in your life, margin, to be relational again, to connect again. It seems like connection at the moment in the world is the biggest need. People crave real, authentic, genuine connection with other human beings made in the image of God. We have to make room for that In our lives, the isolated life is the lonely life and it's the bitter life. Connectedness brings joy and clarity and satisfaction and purpose in our lives. Now you're asking Eugene, okay, I get you. I get this idea. But how did we get here as a human race? It's actually very simple. All of us carry some load in life. I'm speaking about responsibilities, crises, expectations of parents, your own expectations. We speak about the load that we carry. And on the other hand, we speak about our ability to carry the load. I'm speaking about time, health, money, energy, wisdom, things that help you carry the load of your life. And here's the crisis, the moment that the load that we carry becomes, you know, too much to bear, and it becomes bigger than the ability to carry the load, we become overloaded. We are pressed into a corner. The moment that we grow in our ability to handle the load, what happens? Freedom comes to our lives. And friend, here's the truth about your life. Jesus desires for you to live in freedom. Listen to Psalm chapter 18 verse 17. David writes, he says, The Lord stretched out his hand from the heaven uh, from heaven, and grabbed me. He picked me up out of the water. He saves me from my strong enemies, from the people who hate me because they are too strong for me. They attack me when I'm suffering. But the Lord holds me upright. You see that David is struggling. He's pressed into a corner. And then the most brilliant piece of scripture in the Psalms. It says, He bring me He brings me to a place where I am free. Or He brings me out into a spacious place, the psalmist says. He brings me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. That's God's will for your life, is to live in margin, to have capacity. Well, I know the theologians around here, is probably asking, Eugene, let's be honest. There's no command in the Bible that says, thou shall make margin in life. Thus says the Lord, create margin with the arch, because it's got more authority. No, my friend, never, there's no way in the Bible that God directly say, you know, please make margin in your life. But it is a principle If you go and read through our Genesis, you see this principle of after six days of creation, God rested. Was He tired? No. He never sleeps or slumbers. He took space in His life to reflect, to celebrate, to enjoy what He created. There's this principle of the margin in the Bible that we should acknowledge. But here's the other thing. I think it's so important Yes, there's not a command for us, you know, to make margin, but there is a call on our lives to be available for God to use us. You see, when you're pressed to the side, when you you have all of these pressures on your life and God comes to you and say, I've got this thing for you. I've got this person. I want you to go and love that community. I want you... You know, to share that. You know, share a coffee with this person. You see the hurt. You see the pain. Go and give of yourself. You see, if you don't have margin left, you'll probably not be able to use, be used by God in that manner. We create margin to be ready when God comes and He stirs something in our hearts. We're ready to be used. We're there. God, use me. I am ready. Now, Tonight's topic is a bit more sensitive, so I I want you quickly just to breathe with me. Just take a deep breath. (sighs) Okay, I'm going to need those moments in the sermon, so I'll stop you for it. Because tonight's sermon is about money. I see the look on your face, you're like, (sighs) I invited this person tonight to come and check out this cool church, and now they're speaking about money again. Well, my friend, I am as uncomfortable with this topic as you are because there's three rules in church you never speak about, money, politics, or sex. Well, tonight I'm going to cover money. The other two we're leaving for the rest of the year, so don't stress. (laughs) You'll get your chance, guys. Okay. I must say, and here's a disclaimer for this sermon, it's my first Sermon in the evening service on money. So bear with me. Have grace with me. Okay? I have not looked forward to this message this week. I have been stressed. I have, I have my um, sleepless nights over this sermon. And the reason for that is, I'm concerned about you. Because my desire is not that you walk out of here And that you hear some guys speaking on money because, you know, the church wants my money again. How many references do we have of that? You know, the church is all about money. And my fear is that tonight you walk out of here with the wrong understanding. That you hear with past experience. You put that past experience as a, you know, goggles. (laughs) What is that? Lens that you... You take tonight. So I'm really afraid that you would take this the wrong way. So I want to say from the beginning no guilt, no shame, no condemnation, no manipulation. I'm not going to force you, I'm not going to put guilt on you. I am going to share what the scripture says because Jesus, listen to this, 11 out of his 36 parables was on money. But as you read it, you quickly come to the place where you say, where you discover that he's really not speaking about money. He's speaking about a much deeper reality. Because here's the crazy thing. And my friend Klumpo helped me just before, and he, he was really encouraging me. Thanks, Tlumpo. I feel so powerful now that you have, you know, encouraged me. But he said it just before we went in. He said the only thing that God has placed directly You know, next to himself is what? The love of money. So every time that God, Jesus is speaking on the thing of money, he's actually going for the deeper issue in our hearts. He's using money as the way to get there because here's the crazy reality, friends. Your bank statement is the exhibition or the showcase of your heart. So I'm not saying tonight, I want something from you. Please don't hear that. I want something for you. And maybe some of you are very young and you don't have money. It's incredible because you would be hopefully walk here out here tonight with tools, how to tackle the big responsibility of working with money. Is money evil? No, it's a gift. How we handle it can be worship or it can be idolatry. And what I want you to do from the get-go, even if you're a student, is to smash the idol of money in your life and use it as a tool to worship God, to glorify Him, to make Him manifest in the world. So that's why I'm tackling this very uncomfortable subject of money. Here's the crisis with money. There's a lie in the world that says your standard of living is directly equal to your quality of life. Okay? I'm going to say that again. There's a lie from the pit of hell from Satan, Lucifer himself, that says your standard of living equals the quality of your life. So if you want a life that is full and significant and enjoyable, all you need to do is lift your standard of living. Work harder, work more hours, start a new risky thing on the side to get more money so that You can lift the standard of living, and the result of that would be a life of quality, a quality life. My friend, it's the biggest lie of the enemy about money. I've seen many people raising the standard of life, and their quality of life actually decreases. I read an article of very famous CEOs in the world that was at their deathbeds. And when the, the people that did the research came to them and asked them, what, what do you want now before you, you know, go into death? What are you, what's your biggest need, your biggest desire? Every single one of them said, I want my family to be with me. But their families were nowhere to be found. Because they sacrificed family connection to be someone and to raise the standard of life all the time. No one of them asked for the Porsche, the BMW, the boat, the house at the sea. None of them asked for those things at their deathbeds. All of them craved intimacy with the people that they loved. You see how this lie grabs a hold of us. And it's so crazy that Paul in, I think it's in Philippians, he says the following. He says, I have learned to be content in every circumstance that I find myself in. I had much, I had little, and I've learned to be content Because here's the truth. Your quality of life has got nothing to do with your standard of living. You can be dead poor and happy. You can lose everything and be content with who you are in Christ. With Him. I mean, David at his worst moment. He lost his reputation. He probably lost the buy-in of his family. He could lose everything because of that stupid thing that he did with Auntie Bathsheba. And What did he say? He repents and he says, Lord, please don't take your spirit from me. Gold you can take. Reputation you can take. You can take everything. But don't take your spirit from me. Because friend contentment in life is all up to the fact that we know who we are in Christ, that we've got a real living relationship with Jesus. In the end, that's all that's going to matter. Your connection with God, connection with people. Is money important? Absolutely. So I'll get to that now. But listen to this. Contentment is not connected to that. That is the secret of the gospel. Jesus had nothing. He didn't have a place to lie his head. But he was was used by God. Disciples left everything. Used by God, content in him. So am I saying you should sell all your things? No, 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 no. Please don't. What I am saying is, don't let money become the substance of your contentment. Because that, my friend, is idolatry. That's when you put mammon above God. Okay, now you're silent. Okay, let's just breathe again. I'm very uncomfortable, sorry. I hate the look on your face right now. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the story of a master with three servants. And the master gave the first servant five talents, the second servant two talents, and the last one one talent. A talent was basically a salary for a year. He says to them, go and work with it, go and, you know, handle it, go and multiply it, and then he leaves, The one with the five talents, he actually put it to work. He used it. He was a good steward of that, and he multiplied it. He literally doubled what he had. Second guy, the same. Last guy buried it in the ground, and he said, when the master came back, he said, I know that you are a very strict man, and you want a return for what you have been given. Uh, What you, you gave to us. But I was afraid. So I hid it in the ground. And the master said, go away from me. You have no idea what my heart is. You don't know me at all. You think you know me. You don't know me at all. You see, we need to ask three questions in this parable. First question is, to whom do the servants belong? Come on, I want some participation. To whom does the servants belong? To the master. My friend, your life is not your own. You belong to someone. You have an owner. His name is Jesus. Second question. Who decides what each servant gets? The master. Who decides what happens to What they have been given. The servants. The responsibility. This is like very, very complicated theology right here. (laughs) You see, there's two ways that you can use what God has entrusted to you. The first thing is faithfulness and fruitfulness. Or unfaithfulness and unfruitfulness. God gives you what he thinks. I mean, the scripture said it so beautifully. It says, each received according to his own ability, to what he could handle. God puts it in your hand. You decide what happens to it. It can be faithful stewardship that will be flowing over to fruitfulness, or it can be unfaithfulness that would lead to unfruitfulness. In this instance the guy with the one talent he actually hid it away. He did nothing with it. In another instance Luke chapter 16 same almost the same story, also a master he's got a servant but this servant squanders the property of the master. He squanders the talents. You see that's the opposite You're so afraid to work with money that you really make stupid decisions or you just squanders it. You just blast it, you know. Both of those examples are examples of unfaithfulness and unfruitfulness. How do we create margin then in our finances as a Christian? You see, here's the the crazy thing about us. It's sometimes so difficult for us to connect our Sunday faith to our Monday lives. Your faith in Jesus, your worship to your Monday to Friday. And if I understand the gospel correctly, your life with Christ encompasses everything of your life. Relationships, money, sexuality, decisions, studies, everything comes under the rulership of Christ when we are His kids, when we are His children. So how do we make sure that we create margin in terms of our finances in life? Three S's, again, sorry. I work like that. I'm very predictable. S, S, S. Are you with me? First one, sow. Second one, save. Third one, spend. Yay! Oh, so I can spend it. Yes. Okay. So let's quickly speak about spend because I'm going to actually speak on the first one because I don't feel qualified to speak on the saving and the spending thing. So bear with me. A pastor shouldn't speak about that. That's not my expertise. I'm not qualified. We have incredible accountants and chartered accountants in the church that can help you with that. I'm not one of them. I can speak on the sowing thing because I understand the spiritual principle. But just quickly on the spending thing, The one rule with regards to spending is wise decisions. Every decision matters. Every decision financially matters. Every decision that you make on your bank statement with your card is an opportunity to worship Jesus. That's all I'm going to say with the spend. And did God give it to you to enjoy? Yes. Hallelujah. Glory. It's one talent, but it's beautiful. Enjoy it. Treat yourself. Don't end there. Second one, save. God provides to you, if it's one talent or five or two, a portion of that is to actually use in a very wise manner to make more money. It's a godly principle. Adam and Eve, God said, cultivate the garden. Multiply. You have been given a gift to not just all spend, but to actually save in a wise way so that it can become become more. Property, small savings, whatever it is. Not going to teach on that tonight. Bless your heart. Go and uh, uh, Google Dave Ramsey. Brilliant teacher on that. What I am going to speak on tonight is the thing of sowing. Sowing. Because that is connected to the very depths of who we are. Okay, let's take a deep breath again. I need to do it. I'm not going to be offended if you walk out. Literally. You can wait outside. (laughs) This is really not a comfortable sermon. And I'm very sorry for that. But I want you to grasp something of God's heart for your life. When it comes to tithing and sowing... It's a principle throughout church history. Many people had many opinions on it. The church has been teaching on it for all of the church's history. And when it comes to sowing, it's actually having, it's got three categories. Tithing, offering, and giving to the poor. Tithing is a 10% of your income when God supplies 10 apples. One of them is given to your local church, and I'm going to speak on that now. Then offering speaks on, you know, when God presses on your heart to bless someone else. You know, there's a friend of yours, there's a family member, there's a person at the robot. It's an offering to God, not to that person, to Him. Giving to the poor. Friend, if you go and check out Christianity... From Jesus until now, the poor has been on God's heart forever. Actually, the Bible says if you give to the poor, you are lending to God. (laughs) Yo, that's incredible. What does it mean when you lend to God? He's probably going to return it. (laughs) Beautiful, it's a principle. Let's speak on the tithe thing quickly. And now it becomes a bit hectic. All right. Leviticus 27, verse 30. When last did you read out of Leviticus? Anyone? Uh, And not feel scared? Anyone? Okay. Don't read it on your own. Always have the lights on. Invite family, invite friends, get accountability. (laughs) Listen to this. Any tithe. that yields the ground. ground. Uh, Let me read it rather there. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belong to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Second scripture, Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. It's speaking on the way that we honor God with what we have been given is to give that first fruit back to Him. And now we're going to answer a few questions. Why? Why should I give the first tenth? It sounds like if I, if I share this with my unsaved or non-Christian friends, they will think, that I am part of some cult. Why do we give it? Why is it a principle in the Bible? You see, it's a way of showing that you actually trust God with everything of your life. If you get 10 apples, 10 of them belongs to Him. By giving the one back, you're saying, Lord, everything is yours. It's not mine. I'm not the owner. I'm only the steward. Tithing, my friend, is not for God's benefit. I promise you. This, The finances of this church is not dependent on your tithe. It's God's church. He will make a way. <laughs> Whew, okay. God is not looking at us and thinking, okay, the church is in bloom. How are you guys doing? Nice. Okay. Uh you know, Shofar Church, great. Your tithes are up to standard. Dox are. oof, what's happening there? You have to, you know, get the guilt up again so that people start giving. CRC, you guys are doing great. Okay, the rest. No, God is not looking for that. He owns everything. He can speak a word and finance the kingdom. But He wants to include you. You see, every time, my friend, every time, I pay my tithe on APSA online every month. Let me just tell you before I say that. I was a young person in the faith. I got saved in 2007. No, no, no. Sorry. Sure, sure, sure. I got baptized in 2007. I got saved in 2005. Who of you have been born after that? Don't put up your hand. Okay. Sure. (laughs) I got saved and I got my first salary at church. I was working for the church now and I, was, I got my first salary. It was a thousand rand. It was a lot of money back then. My um, car at that stage, which by the way, I got as a gift from someone random. They said, God wants to give this car to you. I'm like, glory. <laughs> I thought I was going to walk everywhere. I remember my first salary and I sat with the guy who mentored me, who discipled me. And he said to me, just ask the question, okay, Eugene, so what are you going to do with this money? I'm like, what do you want to know? He says, no, because it's actually a display of your worship. It's a display of your relationship with God. So what are you going to give to God? And I was flabbergasted because I grew up in a family that didn't tithe or didn't give anything away. And now for the first time... You know, I'm confronted with giving it away. My friend, that moment redefined my life. Never have I budged on that decision that I made that day. It was just part of who I am. So every month when I pay my tithe on the Absa online thing, it's a worship service. There's no band, there's no pads playing in the background. There's no emotional upsweeping. It's me saying, God, thank you that you are the God who provides, that you take care of me, that my life, the physical needs of my life is important to you. I glorify you, God. I give this small percentage back to you as a moment to thank you and worship you and honor you with everything inside of me because my life does not Belong to me. I live for you. That's my tithing moment. You see, the tithe is not for God, it's for us. It actually helps us to see that we are dependent on Him and that He wants to use you in His kingdom. Your one talent in God's hands. He can use it, you know, however. But here's the crazy thing. Whenever I pay my tithe, it's a moment where I cultivate the discipline of thankfulness and the discipline of contentment. And every time that I pay my tithe, it's a moment where I set myself free from greed And from the love of money. It's my active battle strategy. For overcoming greed. And the love of money. It's the way that I do it. Let's breathe again. (laughs) Almost done. Almost done. Are you still okay? Just smile at me for a moment. Please. This is horrible. (laughs) Should I tithe? You see, you don't have to tithe. Your salvation does not, you know, my English is now up. Uh, What do I want to say? Depends, thank you. Your salvation does not depend on your tithe. Listen here. If there's one thing that you can take away from this sermon tonight, it's this thing. If you give nothing, God still Loves you. We don't buy the love of God. We already have it. There's no guilt to give. We give out of a place of freedom and worship. We're not more Christian when we give. We are completely, completely safe in Jesus. No guilt. No condemnation. I would suggest that you stithe because it's a matter of the heart. It's like fever. You don't go to the doctor and the doctor says, what's wrong with you? You have fever. No, it's always a symptom of something deeper. If you, maybe that's the thing that you take away from tonight. You don't have fever, you have infection. <laughs> it's the same with money. If there's something wrong with your money... It's a thing of the heart that needs to be addressed. Tithing is a way of doing it. How should you give? Very simple. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Let each one give as he decided beforehand in his heart. There needs to be a moment in your relationship with God where you actually speak on that. When you ask him, Lord, what do you want from me? How should I address this? And then he says, not with sorrow or under duress. For God loves a cheerful giver. When we speak about sorrow, we're thinking about guilty feelings. When we speak about under the race, we're speaking about manipulation. You know, if you give, then God will give more. That's manipulation. It's not in the Bible, my friend. <laughs> okay, now you can walk out. It's fine. We should cheerfully give. What does that mean? It should be the most joyous moment in your life when you give to God. It should be a moment of worship, of freedom of heart. Not under compulsion, not under guilt, not to twist God's arm. It's a moment of worship. How should I give? Or how should I start? Maybe you can't start with 10%. That's okay. What? Most of us think, I'll start when I grow up and when I have a salary and, you know, when I have enough money, I'll give. No, start the principle now in your life and grow towards 10%. Give 100 rand, 50 rand. Create margin for God to move. It's a small margin, but you'll see that you gain freedom, so then you grow in your percentage of giving. Start somewhere. Make it your first priority. Give discipline. I want the worship team to join me on stage. And I know when I'm speaking on money, it's a very sensitive thing. Why? Because it's connected to the depths of who we are. Maybe you're sitting here and you have underlying anger towards God. Because you only received one talent. The way that you grew up, you only got one talent. You looked at the world, they had five, and you had one. And you might have suppressed anger towards God. You need to bring that into the light tonight. Bring it before Him. Say, God... I feel discontent tonight. Be, be very vulnerable. Be very, you know, straightforward with God. He can handle it. Maybe you've been hurt by the church when it comes to money and finances. Would you tonight just set them free? Forgive. Church leader, church whatever. Get that from your heart. It's a pressure in your life that you need to let go. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, Eugene, I have so much anxiety with regards to my finances and future. I need God. I need Him desperately to give me clarity, to give me safety, to give me peace. Tonight is your night. Maybe you're saying, Eugene, I've made many mistakes with my finances. Relax. You have a father, you have a dad that looks after the smallest bird, he will look after you. Won't you stand to your feet and we're gonna just have a moment of worship? And I want you to do a very brave thing tonight. If you are in one of those categories, won't you, in this song, come to the front, just kneel before God as a moment of surrender. You don't have to come. It's not going to be, you know, your special moment. We're not going to do something weird with you. It's between you and God. Say, Lord, I want to just surrender this issue, this challenge, this fear in front of you. Let's pray together. Jesus, when we speak about finances, we are so aware that our hearts are deeply connected I pray for us as a family that this moment would be a moment of freedom and release from the pressures of money. That we would again surrender our lives before you God, so that you can be our master. I pray this in your name. Amen. Wat 'n ongelooflike boodskap! As jy voel iemand wat jy ken het die boodskap nodig, deel dit met hulle, ons is groot op familie.